0: At this time, if you will stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20. I'm going to be reading verses 17 through 24. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is God's word. It's true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated.
1: Amen. Thanks, Stacy. Well, it is great to be here with you all this morning to be worshiping Jesus together, and I don't want that phrase or that expression to ever become something that is rote or routine or just sounds like it's something we're passing over. Like It is great to be here with each of you worshiping God. When we talk about what we're doing on a Sunday morning, what our prayer is is that these 85 minutes that we spend together each and every Sunday would be the most spiritually significant 85 minutes of our weeks. And the reason that that's important is because it's in here when we gather as the church of God, as the people of God, whether we're in an elementary school gymnasium or a beautiful cathedral, whenever God people gather, this is a chance for us to be reminded and to remember who we are in Christ. Okay, Because outside of these walls in the world, the world tells us you have to scrap and claw and fight and earn and prove and do whatever you can to show that your life matters and that you mean something. But when we come together every single week, when we gather as God's people, we remember that we are something important because Jesus loved us enough to die for us. And if he loved us enough to live in all the ways that we struggle, to obey in all the ways that we fail, to come to earth, to leave heaven, to take on human flesh so that he could live in our place and die in our place, then that's the answer to where our life finds significance. But the problem is when we leave here, we tend to forget this idea of grace. Right? Like, like, I, pe- the people of God have always struggled with short-term memory loss. Okay? On a weekly basis, when we go from this place, we struggle to remember that God loves us, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Okay? and Because of that, every single week when we gather, the most important thing we can do is be reminded and remember what it means to be God's people. Okay? Because when we struggle to remember things, anytime you forget something, there's always going to be consequences. And the, uh, the significance of the consequences of what you're forgetting depends on the significance of what it is you're supposed to remember, okay? So when I go to the grocery store, if I forget milk, there's a consequence for that. If we go on vacation and I forget one of my kids, there's a bigger consequence for that because it's a bigger thing that I'm leaving behind, right guys? So with that, when we gather as the people of God, there are consequences during the week if we fail to remember what God has called us to be. And like I said, the people of God have always struggled with short-term memory loss. And the problem with these consequences of us forgetting our identity in Christ is that the people that are most often impacted. When the people of God forget who they are in Christ, the people who are most often impacted are those who are on the outside of the church, those who are not yet followers of Christ, those who have not yet experienced the love of Jesus. And so what's at stake when we forget or when we fail to remember who we are in Christ is the very image of God that we are called to represent among the people as we live our nine to five lives throughout the week. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see an example of the consequences that take place when the people of God forget what they are called to be when we forget what it means to be the people of God what those consequences look like and so when we see this example before us our prayer this morning is that we would be reminded of how important it is to live out our identity as God's people week to week so let's pray and then let's study God's word together Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and for the fact that we can gather as your people, that we can celebrate what it means to have been redeemed by the blood of your Son, for the fact that he loved us enough to come to earth, to live in our place, to die in our place, and then to rise three days later, defeating sin and death. God, those truths are so magnificent and so wonderful. They should color how we think about every single aspect of our lives. Now, Lord, but we do confess that we are, we're prone to wander, we're prone to forget. We struggle to remember what it means to live out our identity as Christians on a week-to-week basis. So I ask that in your kindness this morning, you would remind us that your Holy Spirit would stir in our hearts a fresh affection for what it means to be your sons and daughters. God, if there's people here who, who don't yet know you as their Savior, I pray that they would see it an enticing, an intriguing, uh, a an exciting view of what it is that you are inviting them into as uh, uh, being redeemed by your Son. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to continue our study through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 21 this morning. Uh, it'll be on the screen, but it's a little bit longer section we're doing today. We're going to read three significant chunks of scripture, so it will be really good to have the Bible out in front of you. If you don't have a Bible on the table Bibles, there's some Bibles on the table, and it's page 931 that we're going to begin with, and we're going to go uh, for a couple pages here as we get started. Uh, let me set the context for where we've been at. Uh, the passage that Stacy read is from a few chapters previous. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. If you're not familiar with who Paul is. Paul is the, the most influential Christian who has ever lived. He traveled the Mediterranean world in the decades following the resurrection of Jesus, planting churches, telling people about who Jesus was, uh, and showing everyone the, the grace that we can find in Jesus. And so now Paul, towards the end of his life, is feeling led by the Holy Spirit. God is calling him to go back to Jerusalem, and he knows through these three different prophecies that people had spoken over him, that he knows when he arrives in Jerusalem, he will face imprisonment and possibly death. He knows that pain is going to be uh, awaiting him when he, he gets there. And so he knows that he needs to um, uh, be obedient to what God is calling him to do. And so, so what happened last week as we wrapped up is he has arrived in Jerusalem. There's a group of Jewish men who are under a vow. They've made a commitment to not cut their hair until they have fulfilled their, uh, um, this time of fasting and prayer before God. And so Paul has agreed to spend these seven days purifying himself along with these men so that he can enter the temple and show the Jewish Christians that that he is not opposed to their Jewish heritage as a follower of Jesus. So let's, that's a lot of introduction. Let's pick it up in verse 27 and see what happens to Paul ha- here in the city of Jerusalem. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, that's the seven days of the vow that I refer to, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help this is the man who is preaching, at teaching everyone and everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at, what, at once the gates were shut." And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed crying out away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. So here, here we see this story unfold of how Paul is finally arrested in the city of Jerusalem. And so what happens is, is he has is, is traveled from Asia, from the city of Ephesus. He's in Jerusalem. There's another group of Jewish people there from the city of Ephesus, and they recognize this guy, Trophimus, who is a Greek. He is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And they also understand what Paul has been teaching about grace and the gospel and God's love for non-Jewish people. And so this particular group of Jews from Asia has already rejected what Paul has taught about Jesus. They've already decided they don't believe what Paul says about the gospel. And so they are Paul's enemies. And so they get really threatened by the fact that Paul might've brought this Greek guy into the temple. And so they grab him by his collar. They get the whole crowd riled up. They say, this is the guy who's teaching everyone everywhere against the law and the people in this place. And they get this mob started. And this mob is is beating Paul almost to death. Okay, like, like this is not Paul's everyday run of the mill standard beating that he gets about every other chapter here in the book of Acts. This is actually they are trying to kill him. But luckily for Paul's sake, the Roman cohort, the Roman tribune and all of his soldiers, their barracks was right next to the temple in this high tower. And from the tower, they could see what was happening. And there's actually a set of stairs that goes, they've, they've found the archaeological, archaeological evidence of this tower with stairs that goes down into the court of the Gentiles, the temple area where Paul is being beaten. And so so the Roman soldiers are able to come uh, and actually keep Paul from getting uh, killed by this mob, this lynch mob, as it has collected here. Um, and then I love that this, this, the Tribune uh, does what any good parent does, right? He sees the commotions like, hey, What's going on here? Who started this? And and like, if you have kids, you know that when kids are fighting, asking who started this never gets you the right answer. And so the tribune still doesn't know what's happening. So he takes Paul back towards the barracks. He's going to, and he's going to question him in the Roman uh, prison there that's attached to the temple. But before they go up, Paul says, Hey, I want to speak to the crowd. And, and since he's speaking to this Roman general in Greek, the general says, wait a second, if you know Greek, you must be that Egyptian from a few years ago who started a revolt and had 4,000 people who we slaughtered. And so we know from the historian Josephus that there was an Egyptian Jewish person who claims to be the Messiah who started a revolt that the, the uh, general Felix had to put down. And the, 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 uh, the tribune here assumes that Paul is that Egyptian. But, he, but then Paul says, no, I'm not from Egypt. I'm from Tarsus, a different city. Uh, I'm a citizen there. So allow me to defend myself to explain what's happening to these Jewish people here. So, so that, that, that's the story of how all this came about. But the thing that's important to notice is why the Jewish mob was so upset. It says that the reason they were angry is they had mistakenly believed that Paul had taken this Ephesian Trophimus, this Greek man, into the temple. And the thought of a Greek man going into the temple was so infuriating to them. Their hatred for the Gentiles was so strong that they were willing to kill Paul. And then they were probably going to go look for this Trophimus, this Greek guy, and try to kill him as well. Because they, they had no capacity to think that a Greek person should be allowed into this Jewish temple. Okay, so what we're seeing here is the people of God, the Jewish people that are worshiping God in this temple, they are so blinded by their anger that they fail to represent correctly what God has called them to be. And boy, does that remind you of anyone from the last two years or not. I think as American Christians, we have all gotten angry and had this blind rage so many times that we've failed to live out what it means to be the people of God. And so the reason that's happening is there's three different charges that uh, that the Jewish people are bringing against Paul. They're saying he is speaking against the people. He is speaking against the law and he is speaking against this place. This place refers to the temple. And here's the interesting thing. Their charges, they're attacking Paul over. They're saying, because Paul loves Gentiles, because Paul believes that God loves Gentiles, because Paul believes that non-Jewish people can be saved and can become a part of the people of God, those three things, the law, the, their people, their national identity, and the temple, they feel that those are threatened. And because of that, they want to kill Paul. And here's what's furtherly interesting about what that is. They have gotten all three of those identities 100% backwards, they have, they have not only misapplied what's happening they are applying those in exactly 180 degrees of the wrong way of what they're supposed to be so so look so look at genesis 12 okay what does it mean to be the people of god in genesis 12 to, i think and we haven't some st- some technological difficulties. So if the screen goes out, uh, it's not Keith's fault. It's because the cord (laughs) is on the cahoots right now. So Genesis 12, two to three, this is when God calls Abraham. This is what it means to be a Jewish person, is that you are a descendant of Abraham. And listen to how God describes this. He says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The reason God called the people of Israel to be a distinct people was so that the Gentiles could come to know him as their savior. The reason Israel existed was to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And then the second thing they attack, that's the people. The second thing they say Paul's preaching against is the law. Now, so the law, those first five books of the Old Testament has all those weird rules that we don't understand. A lot of times we struggle to understand what they mean. And the reason we don't understand them is because we're not reading them in the right historical context. Because most of the law, the reason it exists was to set Israel apart from their neighboring nations in order to show the surrounding countries the beauty of what it means to follow God. So, so some of like really obscure laws that say like, don't get tattoos. Okay, like we're like, are tattoos a sin? Why does it say that in the Bible? The reason it says it in the Old Testament is because the surrounding nations would only do tattoos as a way of showing their allegiance to their God and as a way of worshiping these other deities. And so, so, the, so that, that law, when God says don't get tattoos, he's saying don't worship other deities. It was supposed to create a distinction between Israel and the surrounding nations. That's why the law existed. So he, they said the, the, the people, the law, and then this place, meaning the temple. But, but look at what the temple is supposed to be. Isaiah 56 it says, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The reason God created the temple was so that all the nations could come into the presence of God and all the peoples could worship him and pray to him and know that he hears their prayers because he's a good and just God. Okay, so you put all that together, the people, the law, and the place. And what that shows is that the people of God has always existed to be a blessing to those around them. Okay, another chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 6, it says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The reason God called Israel to be a distinct people was so that the nations, so that the Gentiles, so that the Greeks, so that those people that the Jewish people were angry about, Paul was loving and showing them Jesus. The reason God created Israel to be a distinct place was so that all the earth could come to know how good he is and how loving he is and how kind he is. And so, so now for us as a New Testament people, the church, here's the interesting thing. As Christians, those three things apply to us today. Okay, the people, the law, and this place, all of those things now refer to Christians. We have the exact same identity as the people of God as they had in the Old Testament. So in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, hey, this is what it means to be the people of God. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. The reason God has called His church to be a distinct people is so that we can be ambassadors. Uh, ambassadors represent another authority. They represent the king. We speak in God's behalf so that people will come to know Him. Okay, wh- what about the law? What is the law for New Testament Christians? Well, in John 15:12, Jesus says, "This is my commandment. This is my law that you love one another as I have loved you." the law for the New Testament Christian is to love one another. And then he goes on in John 17 to say that the way we love each other, the way we are united as Christians, that is the evidence to the rest of the world that Jesus is who he says he was. Our unity and our love is how the people of God display the glory of God to the nations. And then lastly, what about this place? What does it mean to be this place? And, and. The, uh, the temple in the Old Testament was the, was the place where the concentrated glory and power of God resided. And so you knew that when you went there, you, that you could experience God's presence in a powerful way. But in the New Testament, what we read is that we are the temple of God. Okay, and so there's this passage in 1 Corinthians 3, which we have, I, um, there's this website called yallversion.com I've talked about before. Uh, in Greek, when Paul wrote Greek, there was a second person plural, like any of our Southern, southern brothers and sisters here that say y'all or my father-in-law is from uh, Chicago, so it's you guys. So let me read 1 Corinthians 3 as my father-in-law would read. it. He says, do you guys not know that you guys are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you guys? Okay, the reason that's important that that is plural is because it says when we gather as the people of God, the reason we exist is because this place right here is the temple of the living God. When we gather, God's presence in us, God's spirit in us is magnified, it's reflected, it is compounded and grows exponentially by the fact that as followers of Christ, when we gather together, we show the world the beauty and the glory of the God we serve. Okay, the people, the law, and the place, all three of those things that exist, that set us apart as God's people, the reason those are important is because it shows the world the glory of the God we serve. The reason it means something to be the people of God is it shows the world who Jesus is. But like the Israelites, we, prone to for, we are prone to forget what that means. Okay, we struggle to remember that the reason God has saved us is so that we can be a blessing to the nations, to those who don't yet know Jesus as their savior. There, there was an old pastor named William Temple who said, the church is the only institution that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Yeah, what, what a powerful concept. We exist for the benefit of those who aren't here this morning. And so, so if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, this should be the most welcoming, loving place that you will ever encounter because everyone around you is here because they love God enough and they love you enough to show you the good news of Jesus and what he did for you. And what an amazing concept of what it means to be the church. We've talked about that before. Of if, if our church ceased to exist in Falcon, would anyone care that we were gone? Have, have we been a blessing to our neighbors? Have we been a blessing to our community so that they have seen Jesus' love working out through us? And so, like I said, the, the Israelites were prone to forget. We are prone to forget. Okay, we're, we're called to be ambassadors as God's people representing him. But too often we represent our own opinions and our own agendas instead of representing God and his character. Okay, the law that we're called to submit to that sets us apart is our love for one another, but too often our, our love turns inward and we're selfish and we only are concerned about what's going on in our lives. Or, or, or we're called uh, to be the temple, right? This is called to be a place where, where non-Christians, when they come in here, they experience love unlike they have ever experienced it anywhere else before. But too often the American church, we can turn into consumers where we just want our needs to be met. And then when they're not met, we fight and we devour one another because we're being selfish. Okay, so, so all of that is just showing us that, that as the f- people of God, we are called to live out our identity. And when we live out, our, live out our identity, like Israel, that should result in people who don't yet know God seeing how glorious and how beautiful he is. Okay, but, but we are prone to forget. So, so what's happened now in this story is Paul has been arrested uh, he is, he's, go, he's about to go into this Roman prison and he has one chance to defend himself. Okay? So, and so now he, he turns around, he faces the crowd that's trying to kill him. Again, they're trying to lynch him. They're trying to, to brutally murder him. They're doing whatever they can to shut him up and stop his message. And he's been given this one little glimpse of freedom as the, as the ability to say to the crowd, hey, this is what's going on. So, so think about that. You, your group of people are trying to kill you because of what you're teaching about Jesus. What would you say in order to try to protect yourself, in order to try to maintain your freedom and keep this mob from murdering you? Listen to how Paul responds in, in uh, the rest, end of chapter 21, beginning in verse 40. So, so he, he motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict uh, manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take also those who who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away, to the Gentiles. So, so this is now the second time in the book of Acts that we have heard Paul's testimony of how he became a Christian uh, recounted for us. And then a few chapters from now, in chapter 26, we're going to hear Paul's testimony again. So three different times Paul thinks that this story of how he met Jesus is important enough that it needs to be shared at length and in great, great detail. But, he, but here's the interesting thing here. How does Paul begin this speech? And think about who is he speaking to? He's speaking to a mob who is trying to murder him and he says, hey, listen up, here is my defense. That's, that's how he begins. He says, here is my defense or here is my apologetic. Here, here is my witness that I am bearing to this. And and so Paul's defense for why they are trying to kill him is to tell the exact story over which they are trying to kill him. I I love the the guts of a guy like Paul who's like, even in the the mouth of the lion, I am still going to continue to proclaim the very thing that God has called me to. And, And the reason Paul's willing to do that is because he sees that in his testimony is the gospel's opportunity. He knows that in his story of how he met Jesus, that is the opportunity for the gospel to go forth and for the people that are listening to him to hear of the love of Jesus. So, so the, here's the thing. There's four steps in Paul's conversion story that we see here. Okay, the first one, verses one to five, he talks about his past. He talks about what his life was like before Jesus, how he was a, a, a person who was persecuting the church. He was trying to snuff out anyone who believed in Jesus. He was willing to put them in prison and even to kill them. He was, he was the one that was holding the cloaks of the people who, were, who uh, murdered uh, Stephen, the first martyr, as they were stoning him. It was his life before Jesus. Okay? The second step that he sees is a personal encounter with Jesus. As he's on this road to Damascus, it's a several days journey from Jerusalem to this other city. He said it's the middle of the day. So it's a desert sun at noon, which is probably the brightest light you could ever see on earth. And that even though it's the middle of the day and the sun is shining bright, he encounters a light that is so much brighter than the noonday sun that it knocks him off of his donkey. What that bright light is, is the glory of Jesus. God and all of his power and his, his omnipotence and beauty, all of that was concentrated in this bright light, this personal encounter that Paul has with Jesus as Jesus breaks in and says that he's calling him to be his follower instead is that personal encounter with Jesus. And then the third step is he goes into the city of Damascus, he meets Ananias, who's a member of the church, he's a follower of Christ, and in that partnership of this, this Christian brother praying for him, Paul is then welcomed into this new family. Okay, he says that he rises and is baptized. Baptism is a declaration of your new identity in Christ, the fact that you used to be dead in your sins, but now you've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus and you're made alive to follow Christ. So Paul finds his new identity in this new family we see in in the third step. And the fourth step is he goes back to Jerusalem and he receives another vision from Jesus where Jesus says, I am calling you to be a minister of my kingdom to the Gentiles, to go to all the other nations and tell everyone about who I am. He, He receives a calling and a vocation. Okay, and so like I said, those four steps, the reason that's important is because if you are here and you are a follower of Christ, you have had all four of those things happen to yourself as well. Anyone who believes in Jesus has experienced those exact same four things. And so what we learn from Paul's example is that when you're on trial, right, when the mob is trying to kill you, the most important thing you can do is not try to defend yourself. It's to use your testimony as an opportunity to share the gospel, to use that as your defense. And so from here, we can see, we can see those four steps played out in our lives. Each of us had a moment before we met Jesus where we were dead in our sins. We, 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 we may not have been murdering Christians, but our heart was stone and cold and we were by nature an enemy of God. And I think that's the thing that gets us confused a lot of times as we look at Paul's testimony and we're like, boy, Paul was really screwed up. He was killing Christians. I bet that's the biggest problem that he had. When in reality, the biggest problem that Paul had is that his heart was an enemy of God. He needed a new heart. And, and like, like Paul, whether you have ever killed a Christian or not, right? Uh, like Paul, your heart, dead in your sins, needs to, to become alive through the grace of God. And that happens with step two, okay? We have personally encountered Jesus. like Whether or not you have seen a bright light on a road that knocked you off of your donkey or not, you have had a personal encounter with Jesus where you understood his grace for you and the way that he loves you personally. Okay, and so that in that case, every conversion is miraculous. Every conversion is a miracle encounter with Jesus and his grace. Then step three, we've been welcomed into this new family. our, Our identity in baptism demonstrates what happens in our hearts when we're under the water and then come up out of it. It's like we've been buried with Christ in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life. And then step four, we have been given a new ministry. We've been given a vocation. We have been given a calling to testify to the world of the goodness of Jesus. And if you've been here throughout Acts, hopefully this is sounding really, really repetitive, right? This idea of been being given a ministry. God has a calling on you to declare the glory of Jesus to the world, to your neighbors, to wherever it is that he leads you. Okay, so here's the thing. Your testimony is the gospel's opportunity. Whether or not you're ever called to defend yourself in front of a crowd that is trying to murder you, you have a story of how God has worked in your life. Okay, and and in that story, we're often, we're we're tempted to run from the rough parts of our story, right? From our sins, from the ways that we fail each other, from the fact that we actually need grace. We're not generic sinners, we're specific sinners who fail in very specific ways. But, But when we do what Paul did, when we are vulnerable and we open up and we say, hey, here is my life without Jesus. Even though I'm a Christian now, I still struggle. Here is what my struggles look like. Here's the ways that I fall short so many times. Here's the ways that I can fail to love people well. When we are honest and vulnerable with that, what that does is it opens the door to show the world the glory of who Jesus is. Your testimony is the gospel's opportunity. And each of these four steps is a chance for you to rehearse the nature of what it means to follow Jesus. And so if you're here and you haven't yet uh, followed Jesus, you've never had that personal encounter, as you listen to the stories of those at your table, as you hear how God has worked in the lives of other people, it's a reminder that no one is too far from Jesus. There, there's not a single one of us who, apart from the grace of God, can't be made new and holy into a new creature in Christ. And so the, the thing that, here's the takeaway for from why this is his defense. Okay, the, the world doesn't need an, an intellectual argument of why they shouldn't be hating Christians. They don't need to be told, hey, this is who Paul was historically. What they need to hear, what everyone needs to hear, is a lived out example of how the grace of God changes us. Paul's defense is the gospel at work in his life, and that should be the thing that motivates us as well. If you struggle to share the love of Jesus with your neighbors, the answer isn't to try really hard to remember that you need to be an evangelistic Christian and share the gospel with people. The, the answer is to remember, like Paul did, what God has done in your life. And if God has changed you in your heart, that's the motivation for going to the world and t- telling the world of the glory of Jesus. So, so listen to how this chapter ends up now as after Paul has shared his testimony, he ends it by saying, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And look at verse 22. It says, Up until this word they listened to him, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. And the tribune answered him, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So, so what happens is Paul's giving his testimony. He uses the word Gentile. He should have had like a trigger warning ahead of time. He's like, just so you guys know, I'm going to say the word Gentile a couple of times, and it's going to totally set you guys off when you hear the fact that God loves Gentiles, right? So what happens is their hatred for the Gentiles so overcame them that they couldn't hear a word that Paul said except this word Gentile, Bouncing around their heads, and so they were so angry at that that they again they try to rush even the uh, centurion and all the Roman guards and try try again to have Paul killed. The guards pull them back into the safety of this Roman prison. Uh, Paul was telling his testimony in Hebrew, though. And this, this centurion doesn't speak Hebrew, so he has no idea what's happening. He sees Paul talking in front of a crowd, and then this crowd trying to kill him. So he's like, we've got to get to the bottom of this. So he strings him up. He's going to uh, do an a, uh, investigation through flogging, because that's always a good way to get information, is you, you beat someone half to death. And so, But he has him strung up. He's about ready to whip him. But Paul, at that point, he lays down this the most important trump card in the ancient world. He says, hey, did you know that I'm a Roman citizen? And, and that doesn't mean much to us these days. But in the ancient world, if you were a citizen of Rome, that guaranteed you the right that you could not be tied up or bound in prison or beaten without first having gone through a trial and being convicted. And if someone beats you as a Roman citizen without you first being convicted, that person will deserve the same beating that you got instead. So this, so this Roman official knows oh, I'm in a lot of trouble. I have I've, uh, tied this guy up. I'm about to beat him. And I'm actually uh, doing this against a Roman citizen. So, so the reason Paul waits till this point to lay it out is he does this throughout the entire book of Acts. Anytime Paul throws down the citizen card, it's not that he's trying to keep himself safe. It's not that he's trying to protect himself from getting beaten because he gets beaten all the time. We've already seen that. The reason he does it is he is trying to show the authorities that the Christian church is not the problem here in this city. He did the same thing in Philippi with the Philippian jail or back in chapter, I think it was 16 or or 15, something like that. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, hey, this mob out here, it's not because the church is causing problems. So he's trying to keep the Romans from from, uh, uh, causing further trouble with the church. But, But here's the interesting thing to note. You have two crowds at play in this story. We have the Roman soldiers and the people of God. And the people of God are so overcome by their hatred that they try to kill Paul the Roman pagan soldiers come to Paul's rescue. Okay, the the people of God are so disturbed by the rumor that Trophimus went into the temple, even though it wasn't true, that they tried to kill Paul. Uh, The Roman centurion uh, thinks that Paul might be the Egyptian, but he's willing to be proved wrong and actually investigates instead of just operating on his assumptions. The people of God are so set in their ways that even though uh, Paul tells them that they're doing something incorrectly, they're not living out their identity as God's people, they don't change The Roman officials are willing to learn that they were wrong to tie up Paul and they change course. It's this amazing dichotomy of God's people being the villains and the pagan Romans being the heroes in this situation. And and what that is, is it's a trophy of God's common grace. It's a reminder to all of us that that even though God's people will fail in many ways and many times, i.e., 2020, 2021, 2022, our, our current reality. Even though we will fail in many ways, when God's grace is at work in non-Christians' lives in the social structures that he's created, that is something that indicts us and convicts us and shows us who we are in fact called to be. Okay, it's God's mercy on this Jewish crowd that he is inviting these people to behave more like the Romans and less like this fiery mom that's trying to kill Paul. Okay, that, that's an example of God's common grace. And, and so, but uh, tying this all together, wrapping it up this morning, the reason this story is so interesting is because it's two mobs, two stories of mobs, sections, bookends of them trying to kill Paul. And in the middle of that, Paul's defense, his apologetic, his argument is, hey, Jesus really changed my life. And I think that's the thing that we're supposed to take away from here is that Paul understood ultimately the thing that was going to change the world, the thing that was going to change these mobs, the thing that was going to actually impact something was not him defending himself. It's him pointing to the grace that God had already worked into his heart. Okay, and and here's how this is even more interesting. is about 30 years prior to Paul and this story of being arrested and the crowds chanting, away with him, kill him, 30 years prior in this exact same courtyard, there was another man who was completely innocent, who the mob came after, and instead of chanting, kill him, they were chanting, crucify him. And so Paul knows as he's standing in that place, getting beaten in the exact same place that Jesus was beaten by the Romans, he knows that the only hope that this crowd has is not Paul's good argument. It's them coming to realize that Jesus can change their hearts in the exact same way that he changed Paul's heart. And that's what we mean by saying your testimony is the gospel's opportunity as you turn inward and look at your own soul and look at your life and look at how God has changed you, that is the thing that drives us, that fuels us, that gives us the chance to share the gospel with those around us who don't yet know Jesus. We don't have to have the best argument. We just have to have the best explanation of how God has changed our lives. Your testimony is the gospel's opportunity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this story and how when we come to it, we uh, can see a picture of how your grace changes us. Uh, Lord, we do confess that we are much more like this mob than we are unlike them. Uh, God, we're, We're prone to make quick judgments to make harsh accusations, to give in to our anger, to fail to live out what it means to be the people of God. Uh, So I pray that uh, that you would give us a a spirit of humility and repentance where we can say uh, that we have failed to follow you perfectly these last few years. God, that we we have failed to show the world a beautiful picture of what the light of the gospel brings into our lives. And so, God, we ask that you would would continue that work that you began in our hearts, that you would stir us to, to be a people, to be a church, to be a temple that proclaims the glory of Jesus to our neighbors and to the nations and to the ends of the earth. That's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, um, if this is your first time here, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. The reason we sit at tables is so that after we study a passage of scripture like this, we can turn to our tables and we can process what God is doing uh, in our hearts. And so here's three discussion questions to get us started. No, these are just like outlines. You're free to share whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, No one will look down on you Uh, no matter what it is you share at these tables. So the first question is, who are the American church's Gentiles? Who who are the outsiders that we often fail to love? And how does this passage challenge us to love better? That's, I think, a convicting question for us all. Secondly, think about sometimes you have heard Christians share their testimony. What was the experience like, and how did it impact your own faith? Why are stories like those so powerful? So and if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, like this is a perfectly safe place to say, hey, I, I'm in process. I, I'm, I'm investigating Christianity. I'm trying to figure out what I think about some of these things. This is a safe place. And then lastly, this one's uh, for In Your DC. So this is kind of a plug. If you're not yet in a small group, make sure you join one because we're going to process this this week. It's Tell Us Your Story. What is your testimony? And think in terms of those four steps we discussed, your brokenness before Jesus, your personal conversion and encounter with Jesus, the new family identity you've gotten through the church and baptism, and then fourth, a redeemed vocation and calling in your ministry. So let's do this for 10 minutes, and then we'll end with a time of worship uh, and celebration. Amen.
2: We are going to transition now into our time of communion here at Missio Day, and that is just another form of worship that we partake in every Sunday morning. Um, There's lots of different avenues we do that here on Sunday mornings. We we do it by uh, singing songs of praise to Jesus, which we've done already and will do again. We do it by serving, which we've talked about this morning here on Sunday mornings, giving of our time and talents uh, here at the church. And uh, tithing our, our money to the church, as, as well as sitting under the preaching of the word, which Colbert brought us this morning. We're just so blessed by his gifting and doing that. And um, this morning we are going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. And that's intentional because this morning it, it's kind of for our opportunity to affirm the truths of which um, we just heard about from from Colbert, the, the truths that allow us to actually live out our identity in Christ right and that is with the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross without that we don't get to live out this identity and so as we take of the juice and remember his blood shed as we eat the cracker and remember his body broken that that is the the true starting point to allow us to uh, be a blessing to people, right, that Colbert talked about. It allows us to um, look different than the world, um, not, not necessarily always through tattoos, right, but um, how we interact with people in today's place, and it allows us to come and gather together um, here this morning as well, freely, and praise Jesus, and so um, as we do that, we, we here at Monsieur de Falcon, we serve open communion, which means you do not have to be a member or partner here at the church, but we are going to affirm some truths. So if you can stand and affirm these truths, then we welcome you to the table this morning. And, and if you can't, or or you haven't put your faith in Jesus this morning, that is okay. We, we welcome you. We love you. Um, And because of that, myself and my wife, Jessica, we'll we'll be uh, in the back here um, that you could come. And and if you need prayer or just would like to discuss anything, any any movement in your heart or questions that you have, we'd love to process that with you and pray with you about that. Um, So as we sing these last few songs... There's tables at different parts of the gym here. You guys can just come and, and grab the, the cup of juice and, and cracker and take it back to your table, partake of it in a corner, however you would like to do that. And, um, so I'm excited now to recite and affirm these truths uh, this morning. So if you guys are able, if you could stand with me. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead.